My grandparents had this gigantic fig tree in their backyard. It was probably a little over two stories tall. And um, I can see my uncles and my dad, this is my mother's parents, they would climb ladders when it was time for the figs to come in. And I don't know if up here, do you guys eat fig preserves? Does, are you familiar with that? Oh, my, Vic knows what I'm talking about. My, my mother, my grandmother, and my aunt, they would spend all day making fig preserves. And there's nothing better than a hot buttered biscuit and fig preserves. Just absolutely delicious. And so from my earliest memory, when I think about the story we're going to read tonight, I thought about my grandmother's fig tree. And I always give thanks. And just before my dad died, he made a batch of fig preserves. And um, he made them, and it just so happened that we were down to visit with them from here in Michigan, down in Georgia. And when I walked in the house, I smelled them, and Dad was in there, you know, canning these fig preserves. And he says, here, here, he gave me several jars. He said, do not tell your sisters you've got these, because I'm hiding them from the rest of them. Well, just recently when I was home, I found those fig preserves that he had hidden, and I shared. I didn't want to, but I shared anyway. But... You know, it was kind of thing that when you read this story, you think, what's wrong with Jesus? I mean, is Jesus being spoiled? Is Jesus being angry? I mean, what's the deal of cursing a fig tree? And so when you first read the story, if you don't understand everything that's going on, it's kind of puzzling. And so we're going to dive right into that tonight. And I just simply want to talk to you about the message of the fig tree. I want to talk to you about the message of the temple. I want to talk to you about the message of prayer that Jesus is giving us here. The Bible says in the book of Mark, chapter 11, verse 12, the next morning as they were leaving Bethany, remember last week we left off, Jesus came. There was the grand entrance. He looked at the temple after everybody had cried, Hosanna. He goes back to Bethany to spend the night. <clears throat> Jesus was hungry. And first, just stop. Don't miss that. That's not a part of the message, but just circle that. You need to know Jesus experienced the same thing you do. Is anybody in here beside me hungry tonight? You know, I'm hungry, so I'm like Jesus this evening. Jesus was hungry, and he noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off, so he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. And when they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple, began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. And he knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And you just got to look at this and go, Jesus did you lose your temper? Jesus, did you lose your cool? I mean, it's almost a little petulant sounding, especially when you read, it's not the season for figs. It's not, I mean, you don't get angry at a tree when it's not ready for figs. And by the way, just in case we've forgotten, Jesus knew how to control hunger. Remember, he spent 40 days in the wilderness, and one of the first things the enemy did was tempt him to eat and make bread. And he says, no. Man shall live only by the word of God alone. Jesus knew what it was to fast. He knew how to control his appetites. This wasn't a matter that Jesus was angry because he was hungry. There is a prophetic imagery that's going on here tonight. And this, that word prophetic is very important. Because prophecy is not always about predicting the future. As a matter of fact, most of the prophecy in the Bible is not about predicting the future. Prophecy means 
forthtelling as well as foretelling. And so when I use this word prophetic tonight, I'm thinking of both of these terms. He's foretelling, but it's foretelling. The prophetic imagery of the fig tree is of those who appear faithful but are barren. And it's not just for Israel. Sometimes I hear people say, well, this just refers to Israel. Well, friends, the fig tree is symbolic of Israel, and I'll get to that in just a moment. But this whole imagery here is, is of people who act like they're spiritual, people who appear spiritual, churches that maybe appear spiritual, but inwardly they're very barren and they're very dead. They're not producing the fruit of the Spirit. Some churches get really caught up in the gifts of the Spirit, but they're not interested in the fruit of the Spirit. And one of the things that I've always tried to illustrate with, nobody ever, ever, ever came to see the tools that my dad worked with. They wanted to see the fruit, the harvest that my dad produced. And the gifts of the Spirit are meant for us to help us in our development of the fruit of the Spirit and leading others to Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at Hosea. Here's a prophecy about where the fig tree represents Israel. O Israel, when I first found you, it was like finding fresh grapes in the desert. And when I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the first ripe figs of the season. If you were to use your search engine on your computer and type in fig tree in Israel, or if you have a Bible software, you type in fig tree in Israel, you'll find all kinds of references of how God refers to Israel also as a fig tree. Then you'll see during the dispersion when the children of Israel had, had been exiled to Babylon, uh, this is a, a prophecy here. In front of, the, uh, front of the Lord's temple, this is what he's seeing. It's not actually happening, but this is what he's seeing in a vision that helps him to understand in the exile. And he talks about King Jehoiachin and the priests that are there. So let's look at this. Jeremiah, I saw two baskets of figs placed in front of the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. One basket was filled with fresh, ripe figs, while the other was filled with bad figs that were too rotten to eat. Then the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? I replied, figs, some very good and some very bad, too rotten to eat. And then the Lord gave me this message. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the good figs represent the exiles I sent from Judah to the land of the Babylonians. I will watch over them and care for them and I will bring them back here again. I will build them up and not tear them down. Underline that sentence. I will watch over and care for them. I will bring them back. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. So there you see the figs are representing the good fruit of Israel. He said, I will give them hearts that recognize me as the Lord. They will be my people. I will be their God, for they will return to me wholeheartedly. But the bad figs, the Lord said, represent King Zedekiah of Judah, his officials, and all the people who left in Jerusalem and those who live in Egypt. I will treat them like bad figs, too rotten to eat. And so what I want you to see is when Jesus is, is cursing this fig tree, he's doing something that the disciples are going to remember. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. He knows it's not the season for figs. But he's speaking to this fig tree, and he's doing something that the disciples are going to remember. It's not out of petulance. It's not out of anger. This was actually fulfilling prophecy in Micah chapter 7, verse 1, the second part of verse 1, where there the, the Lord 
prophecy of the Lord, he says, There is no cluster to eat of the firstborn or the first ripe fruit which my soul desires. What Jesus desired to see in the temple, what Jesus desired to see in Israel was not happening. What Jesus wanted was not figs, but what Jesus wanted was those pure hearts, those wholehearted hearts. Now we move to the prophetic message of Jesus at the temple. Now before we read this next scripture, let me remind you, we're looking at, we talked about this last week, we're looking at the third temple. And it's important that you remember on this very spot, don't miss this. I mean, this just came rushing over me when I was at the Western Wall. This very spot is where the first temple was built. This very spot is where the glory of God descended. And out there in the temple courts, nobody could stand. The priests couldn't stand because the glory of God was so manifested there. When you think about the temple and all that it represented, and you think about the times that God had spoken there and showed up there, you just go, wow, this is where it happened. Maybe if you've been to Valley Forge, you've felt that before. Maybe if you've been to Chickamauga, and Michigan has a beautiful Civil War monument at the Chickamauga Battlefield. Maybe you felt that. If you've ever walked the beaches of Normandy, you felt that this is where it happened. And especially there that God had appeared. And when Jesus arrived back in Jerusalem, this is what he found. Jesus entered the temple, and he began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Now stop at that verse for just a moment. Already we're seeing that Jesus is wanting the temple to be what God always wanted it to be. The court of the Gentiles is where he's standing at. And this is where all the business is going on. This is where the exchange of money is going on because uh, the priests would only accept the Tyrrhenian coins. They wouldn't accept any coins that had uh, images of gods on them like the Romans might would have had on their coins. It was also the place where they were marking up the price of sheep and, and, and doves. And if you were real rich, you could afford a, boil, a bull to offer for a sacrifice. That's where they were marking up the prices. And it was like a bazaar. But you also, and I didn't know this until years ago when I was in Israel, but the court of Gentiles, it was supposed to be blocked off for worship. But what it had become, and the priest didn't do anything to stop it, it had become a thoroughfare for people to be walking back and forth and traveling back and forth through. And so it had become not a holy place. It had become, if you've ever been to a stockyard, it had become a stockyard. It had become a, a financial market. You, you could say Wall Street. You, it had become all of this as well as a busy highway of people just passing through there. And this is the place where God had said, I want you to come. I want fellowship with you. I'm going to make my dwelling place here among you, and you can come and worship me. And all that had become was a sordid religious business at the time. And remember, the quarter that looked, look, look, don't miss this, because so many times when I hear people talk about the temple, they never talk about this. The quarter the Gentiles had been built so that people like you and me could come into the presence of God. 
The court of the Gentiles had been built because if there were Gentiles that wanted to become Jewish and wanted to become circumcised, they could. And this was supposed to be a very holy place. And they missed it. And so Jesus is saying, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they, had be they began planning how to kill him, but they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. And that evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city. Now, before you leave that, I want you to look at the cunningness and the slyness of the priest. The priests want him dead, but they're not going to say anything because they want their position secure. And they were somewhat afraid that if they spoke out against Jesus, that the people would turn against them, and then they would lose their place. Listen to me. You can never fear any face but the face of God. That doesn't mean you become arrogant. That doesn't mean you become self-righteous. That is not godly at all. But you cannot have ministry that is faithful to the Lord by being afraid of people. But when you fear the Lord and when you serve him, God says he will make even your enemies be at peace with you. Can you say amen to that? And so they, they, they had lost sight of who had called them. They had lost sight of what they had done. And this had become a den of thieves. Well, Jesus did all of this upsetting of the temple. Then he goes back, spends the night again. Look at Jeremiah 7 and verse 11. Don't you yourselves admit that this temple which bears my name has become a den of thieves? Surely I see all the evil going on there. I, the Lord, have spoken. This has happened before. This is why it God allowed Jerusalem to be conquered. This is why God is going to allow Jerusalem to be conquered again. Jesus will prophesy that, and the Romans will come in and do the same thing Nebuchadnezzar did. They'll burn the place to the ground. So when you see this, again, there's this prophetic imagery. There's this prophetic message now that Jesus is preaching not only to the priests, but to the nation of Israel, and is recorded for us as the word of God, for us to pay heed to of how we live our lives, how we conduct our worship. Are we fruitful? Are we bearing the fruit of the Spirit? The love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the self-control. Are we, are, are we loving? I admit, there are times when I do better at some and poor at others. You know, and I don't think it's so much about, oh, I got to balance love and I got to balance peace and I got to balance joy. I think it's just this natural progression of life that we go through. If I'm driving in downtown Detroit, my patience is going to be tested. I'm just telling you right now, it's going to be tested. And if you harm one of my children, hurt my family, my love and my joy and my peace are going to be tested. You see what I'm saying? But... That old fig tree of my grandmother's, it had endured I don't know how many storms, how many tornadoes, how many droughts, but its roots went deep and it continued to grow. Storms aren't meant to defeat us. They help us grow and become stronger. Do you see what I'm saying? And so that's the same thing that happens with our faith and in the church. Look with me, if you would, at Malachi chapter 3. Malachi is one of my favorite Old Testament books. It's not just about tithing. The main message of Malachi is God saying, I want godly children from you. I want God. I hate divorce. I want godly children. 
Look, I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. Who is the messenger preparing the way? John the Baptist. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to the temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But who will be able to endure it when he comes? Will Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. Look at this. Jesus has cursed a fig tree. Keith said to me just a few moments ago, if I have to stretch it tonight, I'm going to be cursing a fig tree. I said, Jesus might have cursed, but you can't, Keith. Okay, so here's the deal. Jesus curses the fig tree. Jesus comes in. We know from other gospels, he cleans house. He's flipping. That's a violent action. I'm going to step off camera for just a minute. But if I was to come over here and, and just flip this table, the coffee or whatever, you know, you would go, Pastor, what's got into you? You know, it's a, he's flipping. Money's going everywhere. Animals are going everywhere. People are screaming. and scared. That doesn't sound like Jesus meek and mild, does it? I mean, cursing a fig tree, now he's doing this. He's a blazing fire. Never forget, he is the God of peace. He is the God of love. He is the God of joy. But he is also the God of purity. He is like a blazing white hot fire. And you will know him one day either as the God of love that welcomes you into his presence because of your faith in Christ, or you'll know him as the God of awesome holiness to whom every knee is going to bow. The prophetic message that Jesus preaches in moves the ministry of the temple to Jesus. Now, I don't have time to really develop this tonight, but if you read Matthew 24 and 25, you'll understand that things are going to be changing. The temple's going to be torn down. It's not been rebuilt. There are some people that believe it's going to be rebuilt during the, the time of the tribulation. There are, there are some people really hoping that it's going to be rebuilt. I've said this over and over. I don't know, and, I re and, and don't take this wrong. I, I don't mean this cavalierly. I don't really, I, I wouldn't give money to rebuild the temple. Why do we need the sacrifices of animals when the perfect sacrifice has already been made? D does that make sense? And so for the followers of Jesus Christ, we recognize the prophetic message has moved the ministry of the temple to Jesus. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. How many of you remember hearing, reading that in your scriptures? How many of you remember a song that went, he, Jesus is the cornerstone? I think the Gaithers wrote that song and put it out. Well, that's what it's referring to, is that Jesus has become the cornerstone of the temple, and you and I are living stones that have been built into this temple. We looked at that when we were studying the, the epistles of Peter. Look at Mark 11 and verse 17. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Stop right there. I should have just deleted the rest of that. That's what I want you to see, that the temple will be a house of prayer for all nations. What makes the church the church? Is it a pastor? No. Is it deacons? No. Is it the gifts of the Spirit? No. Is it a building? No. What makes the church the church is Jesus Christ. That's what makes the, that's why we're called Christians, because we are supposed to be like Christ. And that's why our mission statement says we want to persuade people to become 
yeah, that's because it's Jesus that makes the church. Notice also, this flies in the face of everything. This surprises even his disciples. Remember how shocked they were that Jesus was ministering among the Gentiles? And I thought the chosen brought that out so well, uh, especially when Jesus was on the other side of the Jordan. We talked about that in this series of messages. Jesus is saying it's going to be a house of prayer for all nations. It was always supposed to be. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church is a place of prayer. Isn't that amazing? And that's what's going to happen. And you'll see this develop more and more in the epistles. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. Together, Keith, Christy, Paul, Bob, Carrie, we are his house. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Jesus or Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a what? A holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. Look at me. That is one of the most exciting passages in all the scripture. When I read that passage and I realize again that all the promises made to Abraham, all the promises made to Israel, they belong to us as well. The church is not a racial thing. The church is a house of prayer for all nations. And the church is people that have turned their hearts over to the Lord. So I want you to see some more prophetic symbolism here. The overturned tables of where they were exchanging money and sacrifices they are turned into communion tables. Rather than being barriers, you and I, we come to the table of the Lord. Two weeks ago, I shared with you one of the things that just hit me so beautifully when I was having lunch with someone recently is that Jesus was always sharing meals with his disciples. He was sharing meals with lost people. He was sharing meals with, with those that didn't believe in him yet. And yet we come and we share this meal together, rich and poor. We get the same thing. We partake of that that represents the body and the blood of our Jesus. Secondly, instead of animals, the animals are running everywhere, Jesus becomes our sacrificial lamb. Now, C is almost like that, so let me tie them together. And his death reconciles us to God. Let me talk to you for about that just a moment. Jesus becomes the Lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus' death, by him dying at Calvary, he reconciles us through his blood for, to God. Our sins are atoned for. Sin had to be atoned for. And I fear sometimes we, we underestimate the power of sin. Maybe not sins, but sin. Sin is a power at work in the world. We're always going to struggle with sin, and we're going to sin from time to time. But we find forgiveness in Christ. We don't have to offer another lamb. We don't have to offer a dove. We don't have to bring another side. The blood of Jesus abides forever on the mercy seat, and, and the mercy seat in the Old Testament was, was, was there where the blood was applied for the forgiveness of sin. So it's, it's a symbolic thing. Jesus' blood has been it atones for our sins for the rest of our life. So sometimes somebody will come to me and they'll say, Pastor, I sinned. And so it all depends on what the sin was to how far the ripples of that sin would affect somebody. 
I mean, if you lost your temper and you said something you shouldn't say, you owe the Lord an apology. You say, Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me. I want to be sanctified. I, I don't want to curse like Keith said. If he had to stretch it, I would curse tonight. And I'm picking on Keith. He wouldn't have used any bad language, I don't think. But um, if you chewed, if you got onto your wife or said something harsh or cruel to your wife, then you owe an apology to your wife. If it happened in front of your children, you owe it to your children as well. The ripples. And who does it affect? But the sin can always be forgiven, and then we have a responsibility to forgive others. That death of Christ, I know that is so hard. So many churches want to skip over Lent. So many churches want to skip over Good Friday. I've had pastors tell me, we don't do Good Friday services. And I don't say that with any criticism in my heart. I just think people have forgotten they go, there's no need to do a Good Friday service. Jesus is risen. We're, we're going to celebrate Easter. And they rush right to Easter. Friends, as we contemplate what Christ has done for us during Lent and then during the Passion Week, it makes coming for Easter service not about baskets and candy and new clothes. We're thrilled to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. Can you say amen to that? It's so important. So let's look at the prophetic message then about prayer. So the next morning, now this is important because this all flows as one story, okay? This flows as, we, we had the, the um, triumphal entry. Now this cleansing of the temple and the fig tree, the, the, the turning of the money tables, the message that Jesus is going to share, now talking to the disciples, this is all flowing as one powerful story. So you can't just take bits of it and put it under a microscope. You've got to look at the, the whole thing together. So the next morning, as they passed by the fig tree he had cursed, the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. And Jesus remembered what Peter had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Now, in Greek, there's a lot of emphasis right there. I mean, Peter is blown away. And I look at this and I go, dude. I shouldn't say dude. I'm too old to say dude. <laughs> Pete. Pistol Pete. This ain't nothing. You've seen him heal the blind. You've seen him heal the lame. You've seen him cast out demons. You've seen him heal the lepers. You've seen him turn the water into wine. I mean, this ain't nothing. Why are you so shocked about this? I mean, this is, if we were to gauge miracles, this is small potatoes, okay? And I hope that doesn't sound disrespectful. I'm not being disrespectful of the Lord, but Peter's missing the point about, he's looking at the miracle rather than getting the message. Then Jesus said to the disciples, have faith in God. I tell you the truth, you can say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. How many of you remember where they were at? The Mount of Olives. Where is Jesus coming back to? The Mount of Olives. What's going to happen when his feet touch the Mount of Olives? The mountain is going to split and move apart. Okay? So there's a lot more going on here. So when you hear this just quoted out of context, somebody going, you can speak to the mountain. There's a whole lot that Jesus is saying right here. May you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen. 
and have no doubt in your heart, I tell you, you can pray for anything, and if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. But when you're praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. Let's look at that message of prayer. Because what Jesus wants them to see is the fruitlessness of the temple. There's going to be a massive change. And in about 40 years, that change is going to be happening. And they've got to be prepared for it. Who's dictating this message to Mark? Peter is. Remember that? Peter's dictating this message to Mark. Peter is the only one that remembers that the fig tree, look at the other accounts. He's the only one that remembers that the, there was no season. I mean, there's so much here that Peter is reliving this story. Jesus says, when you pray, pray attentively. Pay attention to God. Not only in your private time, but when we pray here together at church, listen and agree in prayer. At the end, say amen, amen, and amen. Amen means so be it. Amen means let it be. We're praying the will of God in. Look at Psalms 81, and I just took a selection of verses here. This is what God says he will do for people who pray attentively. I will take the load from your shoulders. I will free your hands from their heavy task. Anybody in here, you don't have to raise your hand, but anybody in here, do you feel like you've got, you're carrying a heavy load? Do you feel like that it's, sometimes it's too great? God says, when you pray, pay attention to me. Listen carefully. Listen to me. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it with good things. I take that for two things. Number one, I ask God, to, when I open my mouth to speak, Lord, let there be goodness, let there be your message, let there be your love. When I'm talking to my lost friends, let the grace of God come through. But I also take it to mean, I thank God for every platter of fried chicken I have consumed in my lifetime, for every buttered biscuit stuffed with fig preserves. All, I mean, it's what comes out as well as what goes in. Can you say amen to that? I mean, open your mouth, pay attention. How quickly I would then subdue their enemies. Do you have enemies? God's saying, I will subdue them. You don't have to do it. God will do it. I would feed you with the finest wheat, and I would satisfy you with wild honey from the rock. Just recently, somebody came by the, my study and here at the church, and I invited them to come on back, and they set down a jar of honey on my desk. I happen to love honey. I have family members that's what they get me all the time is just give me honey and jars of fresh honey. And I got to tell you, it was so good. I have been sharing it with people that I said, taste this honey. Is this not some of the best honey you've ever had in your life? And then my Jewish friends recently said, eat it with apples. I've never eaten honey with apples before in my life. And so now I am so healthy. I am eating honey and apples all the time. My doctor is going to be so proud of me. But here's the deal. God says, I will satisfy you with good things. Pray confidently, he's saying. Pray confidently. I mean, have faith in God. It's impossible, Hebrews eleven six 6 says. It's impossible to please God without faith for anyone who comes to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. I would not pray if I didn't believe God was going to answer prayer. Now, that doesn't mean that God always answers my prayer the way I wanted him to answer my prayer. As a matter of fact, a lot of prayers I have prayed, I am so glad God did not answer those prayers. 
Have you ever prayed any of those prayers? I am glad he didn't answer those prayers. And some of those prayers that I still don't understand while he hasn't answered yet, I know either in this life or in the life to come, I will. But here's what I am at peace with, and that is I won't stop praying about those things until the Lord says, stop it, like he did to Paul when he said, stop it. I'm going to continue to pray, and then one day I'll understand either in heaven or I'll receive the answer here on earth. Pray with forgiveness. And this is so important because forgiveness blocks what God wants to do in our lives. Friends, something about this tonight really resonates with me. If you look at verse 24 and 25, when you're praying, first forgive anyone you're holding a grudge against. Do you remember when Jesus taught us in the Gospels? He says, if you come to church... And you're going to, going to make an offering, and you remember that you're holding a grudge. A King James Version says you have ought against your brother. He said, first, go to your brother. Ask for forgiveness or get reconciled. Then come back and offer your gift. Do you know why Jesus says that? Because it is much easier for me to give an offering than it is for me to forgive. It is much easier for me to give an offering than it is for me to say, I'm sorry. And a lot of times, people try to buy God off. God, if I do this and I do that, then you're obligated to do this. God is far more interested in your heart than he is in your offering. And when your heart is pure, you want to give, not because of a contract, you want to give because people that are in love just simply give. Can you say amen? I can't wait to deal with the rest of this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for the fact that, Jesus, you are the cornerstone. And in you, we are being built into a holy temple. Not only, Lord, us, but all that have come before us. And one day soon, you're going to come. And your feet is going to touch that mountain. And Lord Jesus, we await that day. So tonight, we pray with passionate hearts, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen, amen, and amen. God bless you. I hope to see you here Sunday morning. Thanks so much for joining us this evening.